Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 5, Episode 9. Last week, I covered the storied history of the Amorites, from their mentions in the Table of Nations, their meager beginnings in Canaan, the empire they established at Babylon after migrating there as a result of a drought, and the collapse of that empire that led to a meager end back in Canaan. It was about this time they encountered the wandering Israelites. I also covered a few lesser-known places, including Rehob and Lebo Hamath. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. Also, a couple more topics have popped up in numbers that I previously covered. The dark place known as Sheol was covered in Chapter 2, Episode 68 and the Ammonites were covered a little earlier in the same chapter, in episode 46. This week, I'm taking a break from the geographic places and focusing on some of the people mentioned in Numbers, along with an extremely red cow. And with that, let's get started. The first few topics are somewhat related and partially touch on the Amorites from the last episode. If you remember... There are some that propose the Amorites were rather tall, maybe even giants. The next group, the one to be covered this week, are the Nephilim, and they were also considered giants. This isn't the first time they've come up. Way back in Genesis 6, before the flood, the Nephilim were mentioned as multiplying with the daughters of men. The text gives a bit of detail. When people began to multiply on the face of the ground, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw they were fair, and they took wives for themselves of all that they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in mortals forever, for they are flesh, their days shall be one hundred twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went into the daughters of humans, who bore children to them. These were the heroes that were of old, warriors of renown. That passage, in all three versions I use for the podcast, also states that they somehow managed to survive the flood. That's curious. And the phrase, sons of God, is interpreted by some to mean that they were fallen angels. More on the use of the word fallen in a minute. The sons of God. This is a simple four-word passage that generally goes unnoticed. Of course, this leads to why I'm covering them now. In Numbers 13, upon returning from their scouting, the twelve spies reported many things that raised an alarm with the Israelites. The final passage in the chapter and presumably in the report, was, The land that we have gone through as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great size. There we saw the Nephilim. The Anakites come from the Nephilim. And to ourselves we seemed like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. At least the New Revised Standard and the New International Versions call them the Nephilim. The King James names them as simply giants, but does note that they were the sons of Anak. I'll get to this man named Anak in a minute. 
Before getting on to who they are, let's spend a minute on the word Nephilim itself. Our general understanding of the word is that it translates to giants. But the ancient Hebrew source word, at least according to some sources, is related to our word fall. And in this usage, it's thought to mean that the Nephilim are the ones who caused others to fall down. Or maybe they are the ones who have fallen. Other interpretations are that they were bound like prisoners or were the overseers of slaves. A few others include the fallen ones and those that fall on their enemies. None of these are really flattering translations, but they do offer an interesting explanation, and that is that if everyone but Noah's family drowned in the flood, then others afterwards could have become overseers or prisoners or become fallen, not a physical trait, but one that follows free will behavior and not held in high regard. Do know that these translations tend to be the minority view, as most ancient translations, like the Latin Vulgate, the Septuagint, Theodotion, and even the offshoot Samaritan Targum, rendered them as giants. Despite this, in Ezekiel 32, the same Hebrew word is translated as fallen. The Book of Enoch, an ancient Hebrew apocalyptic religious text, said to have been written by, of course, Enoch, the great-grandfather of Noah. In this, it was said that they were great giants, whose height was 3,000 L's. An L was about 18 inches, or half a meter. This would make the giants somewhere around 4,500 feet, or 1.5 kilometers tall. But that's not all that Enoch says. The writer described them as high-ranking angels who came down to earth to procreate, apparently against the wishes of God. Around 200 of them descended to Mount Hermon, making a pact with one another, all agreeing that the fall was worth the opportunity. Their children would become known as the Eliod. Based on this, some have interpreted the book as proposing that God granted 10% of the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim to remain after the flood as demons to try to lead the human race astray until the final judgment, which explains how they survived the deluge. The pseudopographical Book of Jubilees records that one of the reasons for the flood was to kill the Nephilim regarded as evil giants. There is a different interpretation found in many sources, including the Dead Sea Scrolls and Josephus, and they think of the Nephilim as angels. This early thought is again gaining traction in a few modern Christian commentaries. Sometimes this is combined with the passage in Genesis that these angels mated with humans to form some sort of superhuman race. Then again, in Matthew 22, Jesus said that angels don't marry, leading some to propose that the Nephilim couldn't have been angels. Early Jewish translations simply stuck with the word Nephilim. As for their interpretation of the phrase, sons of God, they mostly don't use it at all, and other times stick with the thought that they were completely human. 
Much of the interpretation of them as giants stems from the use of the word giant in the Latin Vulgate, with later translations building upon this. When Jerome translated the Latin Vulgate, he leaned heavily on the Greek Septuagint. It's this Hebrew to sometimes Greek to Latin translations where this likely began. The actual meaning of the original word has been lost to time. It's thought that the pit stop made by the word in Greek led to the reference to giants. About the Greek, the thought is that the translators of the Septuagint wished not only to simply translate the foreign term into Greek, but also to employ a term which would be meaningful to their Greek readers. There are theories on why the Greek writers chose to position them as similar to dwellers of the underworld, in a possible being somewhere between humans and God that led to all of this. But in numbers, the spies did report that the Israelites were mere grasshoppers to them. So, in this context, if the spies weren't exaggerating, maybe they were rather large. Finally, there's a more earthly explanation given, and that's that the Nephilim were the descendants of Adam's third son, Seth. Seth's kids rebelled against God and then got to know Cain's daughters. After this, the Nephilim were born. The Christian supporters of this use what Jesus said about angels not marrying as part of their proof. I guess the only safe explanation is that we don't know exactly what or who they were. There are similar creatures in nearby and contemporary Sumerian mythology but this is likely nothing more than coincidence, or maybe cultural appropriation. Also, the nearby Arabians believed that fallen angels were sent to the earth in the form of humans. Some of them matched up with true humans and produced offspring of a hybrid sort. This belief was taken to the extreme by some, even identifying the Arabian Jerem tribe as being the descendants of these hybrids. Of course, little is known about this specific tribe, outside of a few isolated legends. And that's it for the Nephilim, but I'm not quite done with the large people found in numbers. Recall that early in the discussion on the Nephilim, as quoted in Numbers 13, they were said to be the sons of Anak, which would make them Anakim. The man Anak was thought to be the son of Arba, Arba was mentioned in the book of Joshua as the greatest man among the Anakites, which is certainly a compliment, but really doesn't provide us with any better of an understanding. There's also no mention of how he fit into the table of nations. There are other mentions in the Old Testament, though. But these, for the most part, all come back to the spies' report. Except for one in Deuteronomy 2, that refers to a different group of people, the Ilmim, saying that they were as tall as the Anakites. There seemed to have been a bunch of tall people in Canaan. Too bad basketball was a few millennia in the future. Outside of the Old Testament, a text from the Egyptian Middle Kingdom lists Egypt's enemies in Canaan. On this list was a group of people known as the Anak, spelled slightly differently, but pronounced pretty much the same. No mention was made of their height. 
In Greek mythology, there was a giant ruler known as Enix, the son of Uranus, who ruled over a city in western Anatolia. Who knows? The Old Testament Anak was part of the Anakites. They were thought to have lived in southern Canaan, probably near Hebron, at least according to Joshua 15. It was in this passage that we learn that Joshua, then Caleb, would drive these great warriors from the land, with those that survived settling in the cities of Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. Which is telling, as these would become Philistine cities. And Goliath, the giant killed by David, was said to be from Gath. Hence, the giant Goliath was thought to have been an Anakite, it seems that both the great Anak and therefore the Anakites, name means necklace or neck chain, with no explanation found on where this derives from. And that's it for these people, but there are three additional members of that tribe I need to touch on, just briefly. These three members were named in numbers, Elmelm, Shishai, and Talmai. These three were seen either on or around Mount Hebron by the spies. There isn't much known about Amel, except that someone sharing his name was a guardian of the Holy Jerusalem Temple after the exile, as read in 1 Chronicles 9. As for Talmai, several minor Old Testament characters share his name, but nothing is really known about him. The last one, Shishai, has something interesting, but possibly only coincidental, especially given the timing. Sometime between about 1750 and 1650 BC, there was a Canaanite king who controlled part of Egypt, at least according to a few uncovered Egyptian records. As you would likely correctly guess, especially given the depth I dove into Egypt, this was during an intermediate period. In this case, the second. And this makes sense, as intermediate periods tended to be when foreign powers grabbed territory in Egypt. But this would have been a few hundred years before the Exodus. So maybe the brother in numbers was named after this long since dead leader. But that's just speculation. These brothers were specifically named as being driven out of the land by Caleb so that the territory could become ruled by the tribe of Judah. And that's it for the giant brotherly trio. I'm going to continue my effort to stay away from geographic places today, even though the natural next place to cover would be Mount Hebron. I'll save that place for next week. Instead, I'm covering one of the more curious topics in the book of Numbers, and that's the red heifer, a red cow. In Numbers 19, we're told that this was a specific cow brought to the priest for sacrifice. After its slaughter outside of the camp, it was burnt along with cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet-colored yarn. Then the ashes were used for a purification ritual known as the Tumat, Hamet, which translates to the impurity of the dead. This was necessary for the Israelites who had come into contact with the corpse, God told Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring you a red heifer without defect, in which there is no blemish and on which no yoke has been laid. 
Overall, there is a very specific process with the person who came into contact with the dead body being considered unclean for seven days. During this week, they are to bathe twice, and at both times used water that has the ashes from the red cow in it. Only after this process, in the passage of a week's time, will they be considered clean again. If they refuse to cleanse themselves, they are to be cast out of the population. Traditional Jewish oral law contains a great deal of dialogue about the red heifer. While most of it is rather nuanced, there are a few interesting bits, including how to determine if the cow is truly red. Apparently, on the entire cow, there can be no more than one black hair, as the presence of two makes the cow unusable, at least for the sacrifice. I did find a few sources that said that two black hairs were fine, but not three. The point remains the same. All of this is in addition to no other blemishes and never having been placed in a yoke. But how would you know if it ever had been in a yoke? Its hair had to be perfectly straight, as it seems a yoke would bend the hair. And about this red color, finding a cow that's this red is rare to the point that it's considered a biological anomaly. So much so that according to Jewish tradition, only nine red cows were actually slaughtered in the period from Moses to the destruction of the second temple. The Mishnah records that Moses prepared the first, Ezra the second, Simon the just, and Euchanan the high priest prepared two each, and three other priests prepared one each. In my mind, details such as these are not proof, but certainly lend credibility. I couldn't find an explanation on how anyone who came into contact with a corpse was able to cleanse themselves in the absence of a red cow. And there is more. The scarcity of a red cow, along with the detailed ritual, gives the red heifer special status in Jewish tradition. It's a great example of what's known as a hawk. A hawk is a biblical law for which there is no apparent logic. Because the state of ritual purity attained through the ashes of a red heifer is a necessary prerequisite for participating in temple service, efforts have been made in modern times by Jews wishing for such purity. Many modern Jews currently make a great effort to find a cow that meets all of the requirements seeing it as a prerequisite for the construction of a third temple. More on that in a minute. There were a few other rules. The cow had to be born naturally. The water where its ashes were placed had to be spring water. And this last one was an unusual requirement for religious ceremonies. Other such rituals allowed the use of collected rainwater, but this one was apparently more important as the water had to be of a living sort living as in bubbling from a rock. Later, after all of the wandering and the construction of the temple in Jerusalem, the water would come from the Pula Siloam. While this specific name may initially be unfamiliar, it was at this pool where Jesus healed the man who had been born blind, found in the Gospel of John, chapter 9. The pool itself was fed by the waters of the Jehon Spring, carried there by two aqueducts. At that time, the ceremony itself had become even more complex and specific. 
to the point that children were used to draw and carry the water for the ceremony. But not just any kids. These were born and reared in isolation for the specific purpose of ensuring that they never came into contact with a corpse. But the isolation and carefulness wasn't just for the children and water. Care was also taken so that the cow to be sacrificed and the priest who conducted the ceremony would not come into contact with a corpse or even go near a grave. The ceremony, since it had to occur away from the temple, was held on the Mount of Olives. Of course, all of this was discontinued with the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 AD. Modern archaeologists believe that they have uncovered the location of the sacrifice on the mount. Circling back to modern efforts to find a cow that meets the Jewish requirements, there is an organization known as the Temple Institute. This group is focused on building the third iteration of a temple in Jerusalem. Somewhat recently, in 1997 and again in 2002, they thought they had found candidate cows, but as these heifers grew, they became unacceptable, likely from the appearance of more than one or two black hairs. Enter modern technology. Since that time, the Institute has been soliciting money to genetically modify a red Angus cow so that it's completely red. I'm personally unsure if this would really qualify but I'm not the one searching for such a bovine. In September 2018, they announced that a pure red cow had been born in Israel. There was no word on if it was genetically modified. As of this episode, the cow is just over a year old and must be two to four years old before it can be sacrificed, so at least a year to go. Another such prospect was born to the organization in early 2019. Time will tell. The Temple Institute aren't the only ones trying to speed things up. Clyde Lott, a revivalist preacher and cattle rancher from Mississippi, is attempting to systematically breed red heifers and export them to Israel. This is in hopes of establishing a breeding line of red cattle in Israel. He's also hoping that this will lead to the Third Temple. So, what's the deal with the Third Temple? In Christianity, at least to some, the building of a Third Temple is seen as heralding the end times. And, if a red heifer must come before the Temple, then it too is a harbinger of the impending end. Also in Christianity, in the not-quite-canonical Epistle of Barnabas, the red heifer is equated to Jesus. This draws from other passages in the New Testament, like in Hebrews 13, where Jesus suffered outside the city gate in order to sanctify the people by his own blood. In this, the importance is that the cow's slaughter was not allowed to occur within the walls of the city, and Jesus was crucified outside the walls too. The red heifer isn't just found in Judeo-Christian tradition. The bovine makes an appearance in the Islamic Quran. The cow found there, at least the first one identified, isn't red, it's yellow. In that religion, the passage is used to highlight the stubbornness of the Israelites. 
They are quoted in the Muslim holy book asking unnecessary questions. Questions directed at Moses. All of this while proving very incapable of following God's commandments. Since they were making the slaughter of a common yellow cow difficult, God then changed it to a very specific cow, one that's difficult to find. At least that's their view on how it all went down. Finally, in ancient Greek mythology, a red heifer was considered sacred to the Greek god Apollo. In their mythology, Hermes, the god of thieves. Let's pause here for a second. This should serve as yet another example of how polytheistic religions have a deity for everything. How else would Hinduism end up with over 300 million deities? Unpausing. Hermes, while still an infant, stole 50 of Apollo's best cattle, presumed to include at least one red one. Apollo soon found out who had stolen his cattle, and this was easy to him, as in that society he was the god of prophecy. He took the sleeping Hermes to be judged by Zeus. While Hermes initially denied everything, he eventually had to tell the truth and confessed. Zeus didn't punish him, however, as he found the story to be most entertaining and asked that he simply return the cattle. Hermes did, and later invented the lyre, which he offered to Apollo as a present. Apollo's cattle would come to be guarded by the sun titan, Helios. And that's a good stopping point for this episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up with Mount Hebron. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there... Be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.